dig into the uh, to the question of why. You know, we talk a lot about God and what it means and what He wants from us and what He demands from us and what our responsibilities are and a little bit how we relate to Him, even though we didn't quite finish that topic as much as I would have liked to. Um, but now we're going to try to add, we want to try to address the question of why God did what He did. And obviously, if God exists, uh, the first premise assumption is that if God exists, then he obviously did something for a cost. Right? Intelligence doesn't do something for with, with no reason. Even, even simple intelligence like our intelligence, we do things for a reason. Right? Every, every action can be traced back to a cause. Right? A cause and a reason and a purpose. So clearly, if God is uh, around, he's clearly more intelligent than we are. How do we know that he's more intelligent than we are? Because he's able to create cells. And we're not able to create cells. And he's able to do, create livers. And we're not able to do that. And you know what he's also able to do? He's able to create people who are able to procreate and make more people. And the, uh, the two differences, there's two differences between what God could create and what we can create. When I say differences, I don't mean in uh, quantitative differences. Because obviously what well, God could create us a moon, and we kind of can't do that. It's a little bit too big, but we can create a little moon. Uh, but the difference is between what God can create and we can create is that God creates yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. Anything that we do, let's say we've made this, so some human made this chair, which is, looks like it's a creation. But what that human did was taking existing material, you take metal, and you take this fabric and the foam inside it, and you're able to form it. House. You, have, you buy materials, you make the house. We are able to create, but we can only create with what we're given to create with. You're not able to just like that and make a chair if you don't have the materials. But God doesn't, God doesn't work like that. God's able to create something from nothing. Yesh is called yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. There's a fancy uh, Latin term for it as well. Uh, so that's one thing that God could do that we can't. And another thing that God does that we can't uh, is that Anything that we create, right? the second we put our hands away from it, it cannot create on its own. It cannot be creative on its own. Like, this chair can beget other chairs. Um, even computers. Computers could be, whatever computer is told, it could know. Whatever it's not told, it can know. It can't be creative. It's not possible. It can't be, can have its own self-consciousness. It can't, it can't have feelings. Right? It cannot like exist on its own. So the whole idea of, oh, the computers are taking over and artificial intelligence, well, it's, it, its intelligence is limited to what kind of intelligence we give it, to, we give to it. As opposed to the Almighty. The Almighty creates a person, and the person is able to be creative on his own and create other people uh, and beget other things. Right? You have an apple tree, and then you have, you have, you have apples, and then you, have a, you eat the apple, and you have a coupon, like I said, for, for another apple tree. You, you take the seed, you're able to put it on the tree. <coughs> the creations are able to be, to, to, it's, it's more of a dynamic creation as opposed to what we can do, it's static. So clearly God has, uh, if he exists, if he doesn't exist, there's no purpose that's holding it, like, like we are nothing more than the atoms floating in a cup of water. We're nothing. It's just, we're able to perceive pleasure and pain and our job is, <coughs> we don't have a job, but you know, each man for his own, try to compete for your, for your portion of pleasure. And there's no purpose. Once you're dead, you're dead. You're done. That's if God doesn't exist. Has to be like that. 
right? Because there's no, there's no, if we, we just were formed into existence by mere chance, a mere coincidence, some random occurrence happening, some crossing of the wires, and before you know it, there's a big bang, and somehow uh, inanimate matter turns into life, and you have this amoeba that suddenly turns into elephants, if, if it happens, right? Assuming it happened like that. Uh, then it's, we, we are just very sophisticated animals, and we have, you know, we're just, there's no destiny for us, we're not here for a purpose, uh, and uh, we're actually, in fact, no different than any, we're just, we're just an a- atoms that were somehow coagulated together and are able to experience pain and pleasure. That's all we are. But if God exists, then we have a purpose. And clearly, like, like I said, if, if minor intelligence like us doesn't do something for no cause, clearly... Intelligence on the scale of God, God is able to do things that we can't even conceptualize. Um, clearly, he's more intelligent than we are. He clearly has a purpose. That was the assumption we began last, uh, last week uh, with. And then we just try to say, okay, what's the purpose? What's the purpose? So we said that from a traditional Jewish perspective, there's actually two answers to that question. Answer number one is that, uh, oh, well, I'm sorry, let, let's just, uh, let's just uh, retrace our steps here. Now, if God, sorry for not being organized in my thought. So if God created us for a purpose, that means that there was something that was lacking, which we said is going to present somewhat of a problem, because if you accept the definition of God, he's lacking nothing. If he's lacking nothing, well, then what would compel him to do something to change? Like, why would, it, why would he change the status of, the, of existence to create a world and humans and galaxies and uh, atoms and you know, animals and everything. So that's, that was kind of the, the somewhat of a, there was tension in the question. It's not just the question. There's also, hey, if you accept the Jewish definition of God, that you're by definition saying that he doesn't need anything. Right? He alone is, indep- is independent of anything else. So what could he possibly have been lacking that would compel him to create the world, the universe, humans, and everything that's uh, around that we could see and perceive and angels and everything. So that's why there was, there was some sort of a weightiness to the question. So we said that, yeah, God was lacking two things. Right? The two answers of why he created the world, and these two answers demonstrate some lack, not an inherent lack of God himself, but something that God cannot do in his state of being just God and no, and no universe. And number one, we said it was uh, God's kingdom. If, if you're a king of an island and there's no one there, like you have absolutely no constituents, you're not really a king. No, you may have ultimate power, um, but you can't really. You, there, there's a there's a certain um, degree of of, uh, of of kinship that you cannot have unless you have people who are there and who are your constituents. Uh, but even when you have constituents, we said you could have constituents that are subjugated to you. You could be a dictator. You could force your will onto people, and that's only a minor degree of monarchy. The highest degree of monarchy is where. The people nominate the king uh, out of their own will. So, um, so what God wanted is that His kingdom, um, sh- his, his kingdom should not be uh, should should be should be enlarged, should be greatened, should be augmented, should be increased. And therefore, He created a world. And in the world, there's humans, and the humans have the ability to decide whether or not to they want to accept on, on themselves the dominion of God. And should humans choose to accept upon themselves from their own volition, right? You know, 
with their own ability to decide, should they choose to accept God, well, then you have an independent, so to speak, entity attesting to the fact of God's kingdom, and that's an expansion of God's kingdom. And uh, we mentioned that this, that this perspective uh, places humans at the center of, of, the, of, the, of the purpose of creation, and more specifically, the fact that humans can make choices and humans are the only thing that's kind of independent of God because we could go either way. We have intellect mixed with instinct, and therefore that that enables us to make choices and to and to uh, favor either our body or our soul, or spiritual or physical. And that's why, if you have all the angels saying, "Oh God, you're the king, you're the king," well, they really don't have an option to say otherwise. So that once again, uh, it might expand God's kingdom a little bit. Because now it's not just God, there's also angels, spiritual entities that attest to his existence and his dominion. But still, it's not quite the same as it would be if humans, capable of rejecting him, but also capable of accepting him, if we, if we are to testify to this, uh, to this reality, that's the greatest thing. So that's why humans, and more specifically, humans' ability to make choices is the purpose of the world. According to this perspective, yes. I had a couple of questions. Um, your statement about God needs nothing. Yeah. And I could be mistaken, right? Yeah. But the Torah has a couple of instances where it says, I'm a jealous God. Is there a con- what is God jealous of? If, is there a conflict there between the statement, he needs nothing, and the fact that he says in a couple of places, I'm, I believe he says, I'm, I'm a jealous God? Jealous or maybe vindictive. Means he he exacts. He's he could be very punishing. Okay. Um, but uh, but this 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 goes back to what we talked about last time. Although at the beginning of the last series we mentioned that uh, any time that God has given emotions in the Torah, it's uh, an, an anthropomorphism, which means that you give a a finite quality to an infinite being. It's it's actually not there to be understood literally, but it's there to be understood um, only because. Those are the only ways we can understand it. So all the emotions given to God, what they really mean is that God, God doesn't have emotions. Right? He doesn't. Because if the second you have emotions, you have to be linked to time. To time, right? Oh, I got angry, but yes, that I wasn't angry. Right? So emotions can only exist in a finite world where where people are. Uh, you would just, you, you're you're progressing or regressing, but you're changing. You're, you're evolving or devolving. Either way, uh, you were angry, and now you're not angry, or you're not angry. Oh, I got angry. Oh, gosh, so something got me angry, right? God doesn't exist in time. So God exists today as much as he existed in 1960, right? right? It's something we can't wrap our heads around, but God cannot progress. God has no emotions. And when it says, and, and therefore, when it says that God has an emotion, any emotion, it just means that's the way he treated people in that particular time. My second question is, does Judaism believe that the earth is the only place that God put life or put man? And if the answer to that is yes, can we understand why he would have set out all of these other planets and universes that aren't dependent upon life on earth, right? I mean, if Pluto and Jupiter didn't exist, the earth would still revolve around the sun. And all these other universes outside of the Milky Way are not necessary to the existence of our universe. Why do we, and, and we have no evidence that life exists on any of the other places, 
why would we discern that it would be necessary for God to set up all of these basically barren objects in space? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm very happy that someone asked this question, but the way you started off the question is, what does Judaism say? Now, I don't know what Judaism says, because I believe, to the best of my ability, there is actually not a single source anywhere that talks about life elsewhere. Um, I'm pretty sure there might be something that I don't know of, but <coughs> from what I have researched, there isn't any source anywhere that mentions any kind of uh, life uh, on, on any, any, other, any other celestial being. Right. So what I'm going to tell you is my own opinion. And... My own opinion is, is that, I'm going to say that, we, first of all, we don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, I would say it's probably very unlikely. Um, very unlikely there's life on another planet. Because think about how many things have to, have to exist in our planet for us to have life. Well, but, and also, it's based on the assumption that life on another planet would kind of function the way our, our life on our planet. Like, it, it's always like, oh, they found like a thimble full of, of water on Mars. It's possible to have life on Mars. Well, who knows? Maybe life on Mars, there could be a different life in a different, total different form that maybe it's the form of waves. We can't even see it and it doesn't need water. So who knows? Um, so I, I, I would, like I said, I don't know. I would suspect that it's only us. Uh, we do have some sources, the more esoteric sources in Judaism that talk about these different worlds that God either created or destroyed, or maybe might exist simultaneously uh, in other iterations. So it's possible. Um, that being said, your second part of your question was much more interesting to me. That is because I don't. It's very hard to speculate on things you don't know about, and I don't think. I, and well, what if they find life on another planet? I'll tell you a little, little, little. Um, okay, back to the radical opinion of last week. Remember another radical opinion. <clears throat> What is this fixation that everyone has with life on other planets? We have so many issues domestically, so to speak, right? in our planets. Why is there such a desire to, to send people to Mars and send, like, and send messages and search for extraterrestrial intelligence? It's so silly. You have such real problems here. Why are we worrying? Why do we have a concern that maybe some far-flung galaxy, hundreds of millions of light years away, has maybe, a, you know, some dude with, you know, I don't know, eating, eating cheese balls, right? Who cares? Why is there such a fixation on, on, on life on other planets? Mind your own business, right? No, not mind your own business. Who cares? What, why is this such, an, such a compelling subject? And, and, um, and why are people so interested about it? Like, why is it interesting at all? Like, what, like why would we even talk about who? Who cares? Because it's an intellectual pursuit. It's intellectual, but it's it can't. How can it be intellectual when you don't really have any tools? I mean, you, you don't work with any set of data points. You have, you have nothing. It's just pure speculation. It's pie in the sky, literally. Well, yeah, because that's more. That's uh, yeah. That's also or any you know, even history, even archaeology, right? True. But that's somewhat related to, you know, at least something that's we could we could. It's measurable. It's 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 data. It's something you could touch. It's something. Yeah, it's a good question. Philosophy is not measurable. Fi- well, philosophy. Oh, okay, okay, okay. What's the use for that? Well, 
you would agree, Vitaly, that there's a difference between uh, poetry and search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I well, think we would. some said it would be poetry. Poetry? I guess so. I guess, I guess it has a certain measure of uh, compellingness. It's intrigue. It's a generation that grew up watching Star Trek thinking that'd be cool. Flying around on a spaceship. I don't know. Like, like it's, it's... intellectual curiosity about, you know... Is it intellectual curiosity? Is it real intellectual curiosity? Well, just like we are pushing the boundaries of say, religious comprehension, Judaism, Christianity, whatever, comprehension of God, because we are compelled by our hum- humanity to do that. Yeah, but... So uh, can be uh, about... Yeah, but the in- intellect and speculation, like it's you have absolutely no evidence either way as to whether or not life on another, another planet exists, or under, we have no evidence either way, so it cannot be rooted in intelligence. The Vatican thinks so. They got a big, the greatest uh, telescope in the world here in Arizona, and they're all set up, and they're indoctrinating the constituents right now with the fact that we got to welcome our alien brothers. Alien brothers. I, I, I have a, I have a radical theory in it. I'll throw it out here, and uh, I don't know if it's so radical. The theory I have. I like radicals. You like radicals? Okay. Um, everyone likes radicals. Just my kind of radical, you know. So um, my theory is like this. I haven't. I don't think I've even shared this with anyone. Uh, I don't know if it's not even fully developed. So let's try. Maybe maybe a few if everyone agrees. My theory is like this. People do not like. Don't feel comfortable with the idea of God. Why? Because it's like, oh, there's Big Brother, and I better do something right, and we'd have a much better, easier life, quote-unquote, much more simple life, without God. It, it simplifies things a lot. There's less responsibilities, there's less requirements, there's, there's, there's no yoke, so to speak. I don't feel like there's some thing that created me. I, I'm not able to understand it. It's, 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 it could be viewed as being constricting and something that people want to offload, Problem is, there's such evidence to the uniqueness of our planet. Like it was just perfectly suited for life, perfectly. And there's so many different aspects of our planet that are totally unique to, to, to us. That like it seems so perfectly designed <coughs> that humans and life should exist only here. We have some estimates between a million and 0.25 to up to 8.7 million different creatures. All of them are just here. It seems kind of like this was all pre-planned, and especially if you have hundreds of sextillions of uh, stars out there, and none of them are capable of supporting life, and only us. And there's this tiny little sliver of, of temperature that life could survive at, oh, well, yeah. right? And oxygen. And precisely, if it's too more or too less degrees, it wouldn't sustain. Like, and and we have just the perfect amount of of liquid water. And we have the perfect amount, and we have and we have arable land, and we have wind. Otherwise, without wind, we'd all be toast. And without the without the earth wind, uh, the earth wind would all, we'd all be toast. I think it's human nature that, that they want to explore. They go down to the depths of the ocean. Did you find life there? Yes, we found this strange thing there. You go up to, you know, it's human nature to want to explore, you know, your surroundings and the, and the, and yeah, the I understand. idea of exploring. Maybe that promotes interest if they throw out there could be life and some people are really just trying to explore but um, my argument my rad my well i don't know if it's true or not this is just an opinion radical opinion like i said maybe people would feel justified by saying oh if our planet's not that all that unique 
Hey, look, there's life on other planets. We found a thimble full of water. But there's nothing special about us, right? It just randomly occurred here, it randomly occurred elsewhere. In effect, that what they're trying, what, what, what the, there might be an agenda, maybe even subliminal agenda that people don't even know, that they're trying to kind of make Earth less unique, and therefore, well, if it happened randomly elsewhere, maybe it happened randomly here as well. That's my theory. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you all say? No, or yeah, but I even mentioned that we we don't even know what kind of and what kind of. Well, but they found meteorites from Mars with bacteria, so I mean that's they know they came from Mars. They know there's bacteria in them, so I mean that's so I'm just trying to determine how you're quantifying life because if you're saying well bacteria is a form of life, well then they've already found on another planet. So. Well, some of the planets. Um... Yeah, but the, the argument is, is, is that because of the vastness of space and all the different lives up there, that is that there is uh, zero probability in a lot of scientific communities that there is not life out there because. Of but the, that's based on the assumption. What's the underlying assumption of that? That's got to be the assumption. That's got to be the assumption because, hey, if we're just mere coincidence, well, then if you just do the math of what it would take to have our coincidence happen, well, then it should happen also if you have so many amounts of other opportunities, of other resting grounds, so to speak, for all these coincidences to coincide, well, then, you know, doing the math, it should seem likely that we're not the only one. But there's a concept of God or God being drawn to our God. It's not inconsistent. I agree. I agree. I mean, God can commute to other galaxies. That's what I said. I I said that that it doesn't prove anything for us either way. But um, if you don't believe in God, you're going to have a problem that how is it possible that so many things worked out just in one place? It's going to be kind of a problem, right? Mathematically, how is it possible that some... Uh, some unlikely occurrence, um, if it's if it's if it's like naturally occurring, well, it should happen more than once. Well, life beyond the solar system neither proves nor disproves existence of God. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, um, I, I I think that the 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 maybe the underlying um, theory would be is that if you do find life on other planets, it's easier. To accept the fact that our thing, uh, what we have going here, is not that unique, it's not that special, and I think, and this is back to the second part of your question, and your second part of question is okay, fine. Why is that needed? Why, why do we need all these planets? And I think that, that you know that that question could be expanded. Well, why do we need all these animals? Why do we need uh, so many different kinds of trees or so many different kinds of worms? Or yesterday I saw a YouTube video of this tiny little frog, cute little frog that makes these little squeaky sounds, right? And every day, like every like this, you know, every day there's like they say twenty five species go extinct. Like there's so many different kinds of animals. Why all that? Like what? Why there's so many different kinds of foods? It's just about making decisions, right? Ooh, you know. If it's just about us, well, maybe it should be just us, maybe a few animals, I guess. Animals for, I don't know, why angels? Why do we need angels? Why do we need angels? 
So, you know, I think that the, the best answer to that question is that everything else is the arena for, for our lives. Yes, the only purpose is for humans. The only purpose is for humans. But not just that humans should live, but humans should live and make choices. Therefore, humans are put into situations when they have to make choices. They're put into a very dynamic world with lots of other stuff going on. Tons of other stuff going on. And each item, anything, any, everything is purpose. Like this chair's purpose is to provide scenarios for, for free choice. Everything, everything that you see, every every animal, right, could be either a way to, it could be a way to connect to God as well. Look at this beautiful animal. It's an opportunity for me to choose God. Wow, it's so sophisticated. It's incredible. It's able to procreate. It's able to, to, to jump or it's able to defend itself uh, in a way that no other animal can. Like the electric eel. It has a unique defense mechanism that the Almighty just put into it. That it's able to ward off predators. Wonderful. It could be used as a gateway to to, to us accepting God, right? Or it could it, it could be a way for someone to just ignore God. <coughs> All the different kinds of food that we have, right? It it could be here. It could be used in a positive sense. It could be used to make good choices. It could be used to make negative choices. So everything, I think, even the stars as well, like, were put in this wonderful, um, enormous universe. Either we could say, oh, gosh, this universe is just, it'll, you know, just all randomly developed out of just some black hole and try to do the mathematics to figure out how that works. Or we say, wow, look at the vastness of the universe that the Almighty created for us. It's incredible. It's just incredible on how the system works and how the, the interplay with all the different constellations and the sun is exactly 93 million miles away. It's exactly the, 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 percentages, uh, the percentage point that it has to be off in order for us, in order for us to be fried is is infinitesimally small. If it was just a couple of hundred miles, I, I read this, I don't know exactly how accurate it is, but very significant, very, very little has to change for us to be either fried or frozen. And it just works out perfectly. Wow, that's a way to recognize God. You know, I always say that. The humanity creates the, uh, the, sun and the, the sun and the moon. Now, the sun is roughly 27,000 times the size of the moon. But in our, in our view, it looks exactly the same size. Like, if you were to take the sun and the moon and try to see, like, the exactly identical for us. So what the Almighty did, for whatever reason, I'm not trying to draw conclusions, he took the sun and the moon and put them at the distance that, from our perspective, they look exactly the same. Which is just an interesting curiosity. I don't know what the, what the choices exactly we were being presented here with, but clearly it's, it, it cannot be random. Like it's you know if it's twenty seven thousand times think of like a like a like a um, a grain of sand and you know those those big exercise balls <laughs> you know like that's roughly the di- difference in, in in size between the the moon and the, and the sun and somehow God placed it so far the sun so far away and the moon so relatively close that to our view it's exactly the same size now I don't know why he did that. Uh, it's certainly something which is worth, which is intriguing, maybe as intriguing as life on other planet. It's an intriguing <coughs> question. Uh, but all those things are there to provide us opportunities for, 
for uh, for free will. I'm gonna think about it this way: Why why do humans wear clothing? Curiosity. All the other animals don't wear clothing. All the other animals, don't, not a single one of them. Besides for the uh, preppy little dogs in Hollywood. <coughs> why are humans wearing clothing? Is that, is that a, I'm not trying to uh, justify. Uh, <laughs> keep them on. But uh, why are we wearing clothing? Why do humans feel a need to wear clothing? No other animals shamed walking around uh, without any clothing. Point is, the Almighty put within ourselves this um, uh, embarrassment, this shame of, of you know walking around unclothed. We all need to wear clothing, and now we have opportunities to make choices and what, what kind of clothing we're going to wear. Even clothing, something as simple as that, is something which we we is an opportunity to make choices. Humans are once again the only animals that are that have professions. Do you ever see a rabbit that's a, that's a doctor? Is there a doctor rabbit? Just a regular rabbit? Apparently, don't watch Jim. Oh, They don't go to school for it. No. <laughs> and like, we're, it's and amazing. No huh? There, yeah, and there's no choice. There's no, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, job. that's just that's their job. Yeah. Um, we're, we're the only creature. We're vastly more intelligent than any other creature. We're capable of verbal communication, oral communication. We're the only ones that are able to do that, uh, at least in a way that uh, is understood by other people. Um, like, uh, I guess if, we have the intelligence to know that other, someone else is trying to communicate with us verbally or orally. I know that uh, birds are able to communicate and orally, but it's not something that they don't have the intelligence to try to modify their speech in a way that we understand it. Otherwise, we, you know, they would be talking to us as well. Uh, but we're vastly more intelligent than all the other animals, yet we're the only ones that in, under natural settings die of hunger and die of starvation. You know, the past hundred years, how many millions of, of people die of starvation? It's outrageous. And we're so intelligent. We're so much more intelligent. The animals, none of them die of starvation. None of Well, 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 well. We say about the snake, the serpent. Serpent is the animal that, uh, that there's a Torah statement about that that the serpent takes pleasure in, in just killing for the sake of killing. Uh, the snake doesn't always eat its prey or eat its uh, victim, the victim of its uh, you know, of its killing. But yeah, that's another example. We have these weird emotions that don't seem to be logical as well. Point is, is that humans are different. And the world is very, very um, compelling and um, intriguing. I'm trying to think of the right word. It's it's full of stuff, but all those stuff are all directed towards us and providing us opportunities for making choices. So uh, how it actually works out, it's, it's not so clear. But everything is there for us and for us to make choices uh, one way or the other. Yeah? Okay, so um, where were we? We're trying to recap what we did last week and like it'll be 1130, 10.38. Okay, so we said that we're here for a purpose. The purpose is humans, humans making free choices. We can choose God, we can reject God. 
And the second thing, the second answer given as to why the Almighty created us is that we're here to, the, the Almighty needed to give. He needed to give. He needed to give pleasure specifically. And if, if it's just the Almighty, well, you can't give pleasure to anyone else. So he created someone who could be a receptacle of God's, God's goodness, God's giving, God's pleasure. So why humans just give pleasure to animals or give pleasure to, to angels? Same thing. Humans um, are able to make choices. And therefore, through our choices, we're able to earn the pleasure. And because we earn the pleasure, it's the highest degree of pleasure possible. And therefore, what God really wanted to do is to give the best pleasure, and the best pleasure is only possible if someone chooses, uh, or through someone's choices, through someone's ability to reject that goodness, and he decides to accept it, even though it might be difficult, that's the greatest level of pleasure when someone earns it. And therefore, humans, because humans are able to earn it or reject it, we're able to make choices. Therefore, we're the ones who are uh, the function of God's, of God's purpose uh, by, uh, by us being able to accept his goodness and his ultimate pleasure. Once again, our free will, uh, that, that, that uh, ability to choose, is the reason why we're the center of the purpose of the existence. That's pretty much what we got up to last week. Uh, so God wants to give us goodness, but not just any goodness. He could just, like I said, he could, he could just, he, we could just have download pleasure all the time. We could, just, he, we could just sit around in the spa and just like have pleasure. God would just inject us with more and more pleasure. It's awesome. But that's really not quite as pleasurable as something you have to earn to get. And there's no, there's nothing that could be given to someone that can in any way measure up to something that someone earned on his own. If, if you have, like I said last week, if you have a kid, a spoiled little bratty kid who just gets everything, well, he doesn't value it. As opposed to the kid who has to work to earn it, well, then he values and, and cherishes that that he earned. So God wants us to earn our pleasure. And, I, and oh, that's number one. And number two, the pleasure that God wants us to earn is a very high degree of pleasure. That's what we got to last week. And what we're going to try to hopefully show, probably not this class, maybe the following class, is how these two items of God's kingdom and God wants to give us pleasure really mirror each other as well. It's really kind of the same thing. Okay, so let's dig into new material. We make the claim that we're here to have pleasure. Not just any kind of pleasure. The best kind of pleasure. The best kind of pleasure, obviously, that has an assumption within it, is that there's different degrees of pleasure. There's good pleasures, there's great pleasures, and there's just Amazing pleasures, transcendental pleasures. And what we're here for is higher degrees of pleasure. Not only that, we say the Torah, the Torah is the ultimate pleasure manual. And when I say this in class, I've said this in class a couple of times to young adults, I say, what? The Torah is a bunch of restrictions on pleasure. Right? The, to- the Torah seems like just a book of restrictions. And you, you know, the word Torah means instructions. And the Torah has 365 things that you cannot do. So how, how is this possibly going to be a book of pleasure, a pleasure manual, right? God's prescription of having pleasure, chicken soup for the pleasure soul, something like that. Oh. That's what it is. When the book is full of restrictions. When you read the book on a very simplistic level, it seems like it's just restricting one thing after the other. I was just talking uh, 
to uh, one of my good friends who came across the verse in the Torah that says that uh, uh, you cannot shave with a razor. It's the verse in the Torah that says that uh, that there's that there's uh, certain parts of one's of one's uh, head that they're not allowed to shave, like over here, and certain parts of one's beard that they cannot shave with certain blades. You have to use certain kinds of blades without other kinds of blades. So the first question is, oh, does God really care about my facial hair? Is it really that important? Uh, and uh, that's that's one uh, question people always ask. But the, oh, but what do you mean? If we're to have pleasure, God wants to give us pleasure. God loves us. That's why he, that's why he created us. He wanted to give, and He's given us the best opportunity to give. Why is He restricting us? I've never in my life had a cheeseburger, but from what I've heard, it's kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. Right? Especially with bacon. Especially with bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, we see pretty awesome pleasures that God's restricting via the Torah. And now this crazy rabbi comes in and says that the Torah is a pleasure manual. He's out of his mind. He, oh, yeah, he obviously never had that kind of cheeseburger with the bacon. <laughs> Otherwise, he would know that it's silly what he's saying. And you go up and down the list of uh, you know, the forbidden pleasures, so to speak, in the Torah. And you kind of wonder, you kind of help the head scratcher, how is this going to be a book about pleasure? So to answer this question, I want to first try to build a little model here about the different kinds of pleasure. And it turns out that not only not all pleasures created equal, there's actually a hierarchy in pleasure. There's simple pleasures and there's more sophisticated pleasures. There's the, you have a chocolate bar. It's wonderful. It's delicious. You have ice cream. It's terrific. Right? But then afterwards, it, it, just, it dissipates. The pleasure doesn't last for that long. Maybe five minutes until you want another one. Or maybe... Uh, to the next day, but then for sure it's gone. Any physical pleasure has a time limit. Has a time limit. And, you know, the, it feels great maybe while you're chewing it, but then once you finish, it disappears. So that's obviously a different pleasure than the pleasure of, let's say, of love. If you share your life with someone, that's a very sophisticated pleasure. Now, you can't really pinpoint to any one point in time that, okay, you can't, it's kind of harder, harder to isolate it, maybe even harder to define it. You can't really pinpoint to certain chemical reactions and, uh, and uh, releases of endorphins that someone gets when someone eats a chocolate bar as when someone has the experience of love. So it's, it's a much greater time frame. It's much harder to define. And it's much, much harder to earn. Ask anyone who's actually tried to acclimate with someone else and live a life with, <clears throat> spend their life with someone else, and it's, you know, especially if they're of the different opposite gender, and you have to make so many concessions and you have to give up so much of your own identity to actually make it even work. And it's, it's a the very long acclimation period. It's very, it's very difficult. You have to reinvent yourself. It's very painful. Why? Because you have to come into you have to you come into conflict with your selfish entity that you were from day one. So how is love a pleasure? It's crazy. You have to give give up of your life, of your time, of your space, of your identity, everything. 
It's compromise after compromise. That's pleasure. <laughs> but yeah, but we know that the pleasure of love is a very sophisticated pleasure. And you sometimes have to give up something to get it. You have to give up of yourself, of your time, of your space, of your life, of your money, of your identity. You have to forfeit something to gain something. Something which is harder to achieve, it's typically harder to achieve because it's kind of greater to the greater payout. So what we'll find is that in 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 the in the in the um, pyramid of pleasures, you'll find that the greater the pleasure is, number one, the harder it is to achieve it. Number two, the more it lasts. And uh, you might find that you'll have to give up something of a lower degree of pleasure to accomplish something of a higher degree of pleasure. That being said, any restriction the Torah has, the Torah said it's full of restrictions, tons of restrictions, and restrictions on pleasure. Every single restriction of pleasure is a restriction of the lowest level of pleasure only. Lowest level of pleasure only. Which is the physical pleasure. And I think that Maybe the lesson is that while Judaism does not view physical pleasure negatively, I, I might have mentioned this before, we have a, a, the, in the Jewish law, there's an idea called a nazir. A nazir is someone who makes a vow uh, to not drink wine or to not come in close contact with dead people for a minimum of 30 days. There's someone who wants to be secluded, he wants to be holy, he wants to be special, he wants to uh, increase the holiness of his life, he makes this vow. I'm not going to drink wine, wine brings about frivolity, I'm not doing that, I'm not going to be involved with dead people, dead people are impure, I want to be pure, I'm going to make them become a common nazir. So it's a whole portion of the Torah, what he has to do with the processes. At the end of his period of nazirut, he comes to the temple and he brings an offering. What kind of offering? A sin offering! A sin offering that you didn't have to do the sin. And the Thomas says, wait a minute, this guy just did something good. He wanted to become holier. Why does he bring up a sin offering? It says, atzmo He pained himself from abstaining from wine. There is a sin to abstain from pleasure. There's a sin to abstain from pleasure. So the Torah clearly, and there's other sources to this as well. Uh, like, for example... There's a, a Talmud, a Jerusalem Talmud, that uh, mentions that if someone does not partake in the pleasures of like the various foods and fruits that the Almighty prepared for him, then he's not doing what the Almighty wants. The he said, I gave this to you because I love you. And I want you to enjoy it. And even physical pleasures, I want you to enjoy it. And don't think, don't become holier than thou and say, oh, oh no, I want only higher degrees of pleasure. No, the Torah views even the most simple pleasures very positively. That being said, there's a tremendous danger of someone only settling for the quick, easy fixes of chocolate bar pleasure. And this is the tremendous danger the Torah wants us to avoid. I could either go to law school, or better yet, I could go to medical school, and I could pay for eight years. Not only that, 
to actually have to borrow money and to owe three hundred thousand dollars at the end of eight years. So I'm working like a dog, slaving like a dog, taking all these tests, having absolutely zero social life. I'm not getting paid. I'm paying. I'm going to owe three hundred thousand dollars. That's crazy. Why would someone do that? I could just go walk into the Burger King and McDonald's and flip burgers. I got paid that day. <laughs> I got paid that day. And this is a this is a, once again a classic case of someone having to make a choice. Long-term pleasure, accomplishment, meaning, right? Or quick, instant pleasure. And obviously, there is a value of having something right away. There is a, there is a value of having something right away. Very easy. You don't have to work that hard to, to accomplish it. But if someone is doing just that in lieu, uh, in lieu of other pleasures, then they're kind of missing the mark of what God really wants us to have in life. And that's real, deep, lasting, sophisticated pleasure as well. I mean, playing tennis is wonderful. 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 Playing tennis is great. But if you just play tennis all day and all night, well, you know, maybe you should get a job or build a family <laughs> or, or go to school or start an organization or a company or something. Like, be productive in life. Well, what do you mean tennis is awesome? Well, tennis is awesome. But if that's the only thing you're doing, if you're only subsisting on the lowest levels of pleasure, what kind of life are you living? What are you really accomplishing in life? Yeah, so, and I apologize for jumping in and out. Yeah. And, and, and things, but I'm inspired that the, individual, the individualism allows for different people get different pleasures from different things at different times and stages of our lives. Uh-huh. So the danger of overindulgence, for instance, Yeah. But yeah, but the danger with that is that you could have someone, and I'm sure everyone here knows someone who in some way, shape, or form fits this uh, characterization, someone who just wants to play Call of Duty all day and all night, right? And that person may find that very fulfilling. Hey, I'm playing with other people in the world, and we're shooting up the zombies, or, right, Assassin's Creed, or uh, all these all these awesome, very engaging, very entertaining, very pleasuresome games. And but would you want that for your son? So which is where the control of the urges comes in. That you that you don't do the same thing all the time. That if your urge is to play, what was the game? What was it Whatever. I was just, uh, right. So whatever, whatever video game. Video game. So these games are very immersive and very, and it's very compelling. And but I think we could, if we leave it up to our children, let's say, to make some of these decisions. Oftentimes, and we, I'm sure we all know someone like this. 
someone who just wants the easy pleasures and the readily available pleasures, and as a result of that, will neglect what we know are more sophisticated pleasures. Right? So you would let, you'd let your family, your, your job, your professional life, your being meaningful, being involved in the community, all these very uh, hard-to-get pleasures, but also much more fulfilling pleasures, sometimes go by the wayside if someone is just involved on in simple, easy-to-get pleasures. Right. Which, is, which is why we have other teachings like don't separate yourself from community, etc. So mm-hmm. it's fine. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is finding that balance and what's right for an individual becomes becomes part of the teaching where you're balancing lots of different teachings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but I, I, I would, I would. My argument is that. Torah, the Torah's restrictions on physical pleasures, some physical pleasures, what it's really trying to do is to make sure that we don't get too steeped into the simple pleasures of life and as a result of that, not uh, to lose sight of and not um, place a value on the more sophisticated pleasures, which is what God really wants from us. But, yeah, but, but then again, like, like the rabbi mentioned, there's a certain balance because we are told, hey, you better enjoy life because God, God, life's here for you to enjoy. So what I want to explain with the spouse, I'll get to you in a second with Vitaly, is that the physical pleasures, the simple pleasures are in some senses, right, or for some purposes, very, very good and necessary. And for other purposes, kind of a little dangerous. But there's dangers of overindulgence. There's, there's dangers of making it a priority in life. Like, I don't think there's anyone who could argue that if there's meaning in life, it's about eating turtle bars or just, it's hedonism. Hedonism is when someone says, all I want is the physical, simple pleasures. That's all I want. And that's, I guess that is, a, you know, it's a, it's a philosophy. Uh, but what that what, what that philosophy is really positing, what's really, what it's really promoting is that the simple pleasures of life is all that there is out there, and we know better. So, there's the danger of, 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 of the physical pleasures, but then again, it's necessary. So why is it necessary? So it's not why it's danger. It's, it's, it's dangerous because, you know, it could be an escape, it could be mindless, it could be something where someone just makes it a priority, but it's also very necessary. Why is it necessary? Why, why would the Torah tell us that if you don't drink wine, you're doing a sin? Why is it necessary? Why, if we, if, let's make the assumption that what we really want is the higher levels of pleasure. Love, meaning, purpose, understanding God, much more physical pleasure. We'll get to each one of these themes and try to develop these ideas a little further. But we're dealing with physical pleasure right now. The ice creams, chocolate bars, um, of of, uh, potato chips, falafel. Food, anything that you can experience with your five senses. Music, those things are good. It's, it has value. What's that value? So, um, I think that uh, one of, I, I have a uh, tradition from my grandfather about this uh, particular question. I'll share it with you guys. And uh, that is that anytime someone wants to make a spiritual ascension, their body, well, their soul wants to soar. 
the body wants to pull him down. Remember, we said we said that man. We said last week, man. The Hebrew word for Adam could either mean Adama, which is earth, or Adama becomes similar to God, because with this dichotomy, with this fusion of the spiritual and the physical. So the spiritual wants to soar, the physical wants to pull it down. So we're going to have this tremendous conflict between our body and our soul if we want to accomplish the spiritual goals. So, the one way to avoid this is by making sure that the body, the physical, is also placated, is also tended to. So, if you remember the book of Genesis, we see uh, Isaac wants to give a blessing to his son Esau. And he tells him, I want you to go, Esau, and make me two rack of ribs, fresh. Go out and get me some matamim, some delicious delicacies, so I can give you a blessing. It's a little somewhat of a head stretcher. Okay, Isaac, our forefather, I want to have a massive, massive steak, but not one, two of them. And it has to be fresh. Don't get me from free. Don't go to Randall's. I don't want the Randall's, that Kroger version. I want it fresh. Really? You're about to give a blessing, and, and, the, and the, uh, the, the way you prepare for that is by having a massive, massive steak, but two of them. So, uh, and we know the story is that Jacob came and usurped it, but he also brought the, he also brought the delicacies, and he got, they got the blessings, and I, I, Isaac was blind, he wasn't, and J- Jacob wore the hairy clothing, and somehow he was able to, uh, to, drag, to, 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 to get the blessings out of, out of Isaac. So it definitely explains that this blessing that Isaac was given was a blessing that was given in a, a prophetic blessing. One or two prophecy, your soul has to soar. Has to. Problem is, you want to soar, your soul has to soar, wants to soar. What happens to your body? Your body says, uh-uh, you ain't soaring. It pulls you down. It's a drag on the soul. On the soul. So what you need to do is you got to make sure the, soul, the, the body's on board as well. you got to throw the body a bone. So what you do is you take care of the body and say, you know what? We're going to do a spiritual homage. We're going to make sure the body's on board. We're going to give it something. Okay. Yeah. You know how like when you're on a diet and you say, I can't eat the whole, the whole cheesecake, but I can have a little bitty piece and that satisfies me and it keeps you from overindulging. Well, that's the, but, 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 so, but think about it. What's happening? Your soul right. wants to have the high level right. of pleasure, which is fitness. Right? Your body wants to just drown yourself in chocolate. So you, just so you say, I'm going to give a little slice of chocolate. Hopefully that will placate the body right. and we can do what the soul wants. Exactly. And this interplay, this, this, this conflict that we always have between our soul and our body, what we got to do is we cannot try to just suppress the body entirely because what happens if you try to suppress the body entirely? There's the backlash effect. Rebellion. It rebels. Exactly. Rebellion. There's a backlash. And you, have, you meet these people saying, hey, I'm going on a diet, and I'm going to have just vegetables and omelets for three weeks now. And you map it out, and you got to get one of those apps that says, I'll lose about 33 pounds doing that. Wonderful. Three days later, they're like, oh. and they just, you know, they, just, <laughs> they, they see, and they can't help themselves, and they go on a binge. And there's a bit, bit they don't just eat what they would have normally eaten, you know, eaten. They eat much, much more. Why? Because they try to suppress the body too much. And it was described once as a spring. You can't be push it too hard; you'll have the backlash. You got to push it just a little bit, just a little bit. Make sure it's not 
uh, beaten to a pulp because otherwise the cat in the corner is going to just lash out at you. Right. So, so which is which is completely connected to viewers learning. Absolutely. Because we have so many students who rebel against learning because they go through this intense experience of a bar mitzvah and say, now I'm done with it. And they miss out of the learning just when they're getting old enough to appreciate it. Sophisticated learning. And we raised the bar mitzvah age. That's what Reform Judaism wanted to do years ago. <laughs> but it's, but the, for the child who gets this sense of accomplishment at bar mitzvah, it, I mean, what we've got excitingly here is a lot of our teenagers after bar mitzvah come and help out in the religious school. So they're reinforcing their learning. What's interesting is that, is that um, Thomas says that uh, there's actually two ages of bar mitzvah. There's 13 and 20. At 83. Boy, <laughs> I think that's more of a modern thing, 83. Uh, but, um, and that is that uh, this is significant because, uh, like, it, like the way it says it is that the, uh, the, the higher court, so to speak, like God's court, doesn't judge people till they're 20. So there's a certain degree of maturation that uh, people get at the age of 13, but then there's like, uh, when someone fully matures at the age of 20. So, uh, what's interesting is that rebellion, like teenage years, is exactly from 13 to 20. That's when someone's you know, teenagers and they have all the, this crazy uh, storm of, of hormones and feelings and anger and angst and you know puberty and adolescence. And it's just a disaster. And But we actually point to the beginning of that as being one step of the maturation and the end of that being the completion of the maturation. You're an adult. Welcome to life. Get a job. It's amazing that the network community knows that the frontal lobe is not fully developed until 20 as well, which fully syncs up with Mm -hmm. what the Torah says. Absolutely. Yeah, they're always always catching up just perfectly. I once once made an observation that, uh, you know, there used to be this big... um, theory or proof for evolution in the vestigial organs, right? Organs that were vestiges of previous uh, of previous iterations of, of humans with leftovers. Like, people thought that the, the appendix was a non-necessary organ. Appendix and the... Um, uh, the uh, yeah. And, and uh, over time, science has actually found uh, purposes for all these organs, but there's only one organ that science has not found out a reason for. And what's interesting is that this is the only organ that the Torah tells us why it exists. That is the earlobes. The earlobes is the only thing that science still has, can, can, has, no, has no answer for. You know, the, the, the appendix is like a, uh, a breeding grounds for, for bacteria that when someone has... Uh, when someone, uh, when someone's uh, uh, like uh, intestines get uh, this lining, lining to the intestine has this uh, this material uh, bacteria that, that makes the uh, the digestion uh, flow properly, uh, and the this this appendix because it's when someone would have back in the day people had you know food wasn't clean the water wasn't clean they would uh, often they, you know they you know they would get you know gutted out so to speak and they would need to replenish the bacteria the side of their of their intestines so that's where the appendix was like a little you know 
container full of this bacteria. Whatever was needed, it would just uh, line the. That's what that's what it's there for. And the problem is, is that it, you know, in today's day and age, in modern countries, we have such clean food and clean water. We don't actually need it. So when the uh, origin is not needed, it gets inflamed. It's not being used. It gets inflamed. And you have, hence, uh, appendicitis. Appendicitis does not exist in sub-Saharan Africa. It doesn't. Uh, so that's an example. But it's interesting. The only thing that the Torah tells us specifically what it's for is what science tells us. What, science says, oh, we have no answer. Because it doesn't have, it's, it's not a physical function. And it's interesting. The Talmud says, it says that the reason we have earlobes is to cover ears. When someone's speaking Lashon Hara, when someone's speaking uh, uh, evil talk, so to speak, uh, we have the earlobe to cover it up. You shouldn't hear. You don't want to hear someone. If someone says, "Hey, uh, did you hear what happened to that dude?" or just something negative about someone else, say, "I'm sorry, I'm not interested in hearing." No, 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 right? So my kids did. Not listening. Right? That's interesting. That, and that's the only thing that science, because you know what? It doesn't have a physical function. That's why the Torah says, oh, you, you'll scour all the science, science books, and you'll scour everything. You'll about to find a purpose for it. Because there isn't a physical purpose for it. it has, this has a spiritual function only. Well, doesn't it say somewhere in front also that um, you pierce your your earlobe as a sign that you will stay? Oh, last week's Parsha. Yeah. This past week's Parsha. Uh, I actually... I was, I, just yesterday, well, I'm sorry, Friday night, I was trying to make this connection. That it, it says that uh, a Jewish slave, I don't want to get into the whole discussion, but a Jewish slave who decides to stay, to stay, to stay past, on so past his six seven, years, past yeah. the six years, so he's there for a six-year uh, sentence, so to speak, right. uh, and he decides, oh, I want to stay for forever because it's so wonderful here, treat me so well, uh, that he has to get his ear pierced. Why is, it, why is his ear, why ear, why pierce, why by the door, uh, so one of the well, one of the reasons why it says in the midrash is that because the ear, the ear, so to speak, heard something and it rejected it. So if you hear something, it's, we kind of make a, a note, notation on the ear, a mark on the ear, earmark, we earmark him. Uh, but I wanted to make this particular point that uh, the, that this ear, the ear, is kind of a, a spiritual organ, so to speak. But I, I didn't actually connect the dots. But that's interesting that you mentioned this today. Where were we? As always, we got so far off track. Are you talking about the body being? Um, oh, 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 yes, yes. So, the, what, so what's the balance? Pleasures, simple pleasures. We're kind of told that we have to have them. You, you cannot say I don't want to have wine. Wine's there for us to enjoy. On the other hand, we're told that there's a danger of indulgence. So there is the danger of indulgence, making it a fo- focal point in our lives. But there's also a, a benefit to it because. A, it could be fuel, right? It could be energy that could be translated into spiritual or higher pleasures. And B, it could be a way to stave off the one of the great dangers of spiritual ascension, and that is backlash. There's a tremendous danger. Anytime you want to accomplish something that's hard to do, why is it hard? Because it means giving up of yourself. You want to have, like we said, love, just as an easy example. It's very hard. Your soul wants it. Your body doesn't want it. It doesn't. It's hard for the body. The body wants to be lazy. Remember, the body is compared to the earth, which is sedentary. It doesn't move. It doesn't want. It's very inflexible, very stubborn. That's where your body is. Your body doesn't want to compromise. So your body is going to reject it. You got to make sure the body isn't bored. You have to make sure. You have to massage the body into in, in, into compliance. So there is a, a tremendous need that we have for uh, for 
these levels of pleasure, but that cannot be the goal, and we have to learn how to control it. Because our de facto state is one of be identifying with the body. And it, we could very, it's very easily understood. We could very, we could, it's instant. You kind of, you eat the chocolate bar, you got the pleasure. It's there. It's very easy. It's very inexpensive. It's very low learning curve. It's kind of, you know, you don't need to give up something. You don't need to, to learn something. You don't need to educate yourself about it. It's just simple, you know. It's like, you know, with the exception of coffee and beer, like it's all just right. You don't really have to develop a taste for it. The flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. No, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't you think it also comes back to, are we a physical entity having a spiritual experience, or are we a spiritual being having a physical experience? Because clearly we have to be both. But if we are a spiritual being essentially having a physical experience, then it is, in my mind's eye, much more easy to to rise above that which holds us to ground. The question is, who's in the driver's seat? We are. Well, Our we. spirit is. So I have a few ways to analyze this. Um, number one, the, the body and the soul comparison was once compared to the horse and the rider. Right? You can't get to where you want to get to without the body. It's the right. horse. It's Hence, the horse behaves. you got to give the horse some goodies. Mm-hmm. But you can't become the horse. Uh, the horse cannot dictate where you're going. The horse can't be the one who's in charge of, right? You have to direct the horse where it needs to go. Right. So the rider is the soul. The soul is the vision. The soul is the direction. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the horse is going to implement, be the, 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 the tool for implementation of the desire, the will of the, of the, of the rider. That's one way to look at it. But um, with regards to, um, I think there's another way to look at it. And uh, I think that it could be demonstrated that we are we, we are more associated with our bodies than with our soul. Just as an, for an example, if you do something which is bad for your body, you'll feel it much more intensely than you'll feel if it's wrong for your body, bad for your soul. If someone decides to steal, right, the soul does not like that. It's very, very painful for the soul. It's like your soul sticking its finger through the fire. It's very painful. You don't feel it because your feelings are more closely linked to your body. Now, um, But your body will also feel it. Your body will feel... Uh, that you... If you steal, your body would also register it. Well, your body might not register it. You, you might be able to experience the emotions of the soul. Your soul will give off a vibration that will be experienced by your emotions. And your body will hold it because you'll feel it in your gut. The point is you could still feel spiritual pain. Sure. But if someone gives you a little poke in your arm, you'll feel it much more, it'll be much more pronounced. tangible, mm-hmm. pronounced, right? Because we're more associated with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you yeah no. I just was wondering why do we need to choose which uh, which one is it uh, for each specific person with the body or soul? Why not can we uh, decide to think in terms of say if I am reading Nietzsche? Yeah. Uh, maybe my soul now is the driver's seat, but if I am going to that French restaurant to have a gourmet dinner. 
it's my body. And in other words, but it's a balance. How often do I spend reading philosophy versus how often do I need to go to a two-star Michelin restaurant to do something on the same? Uh, but, I, but, but who says it's not like that? I think it is like that. I think it is like that. I think that there are times where we we choose our soul, we make the right decisions, and there are times where our body's in the driver's seat and our soul is put in submission. So yeah, I, th- I think that's correct. I don't know. I didn't. I, did I say that it has to be one or the other? So this discussion. You no, I. I, I what, having when the, some people would be a. No, 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 no. We we're a mix. We're a mix. We have the ability to choose who's going to have preferential treatment. Now, if we do nothing, what if we do nothing? So this is what this is my point that I want to bring out with this. If someone does nothing to change the path that they're on. The body will always win. The body's in pole position. That's a nice way to put it. The body's in pole position, which is a term for NASCAR. NASCAR term. It means the body's in first place. So because we're more associated with our body, as babies, we're almost all body. Like body talk to a baby. Talk to, try to talk to a, a 10-year-old about the pleasure of love. To them, it doesn't mean it's, it's irrational. Or even say, okay, have the healthy food uh, because the the candy, if you just want to have a diet of candy, it's not good for you. Kids don't understand that. Because to them, they're much, much, much more associated <coughs> with their body. Over time, with maturation, with our intelligence, we're able to understand the pleasures of the soul as well. But if we don't do anything to change the state that we are that we are born into as being body first, soul, you know, tenth, right? Body first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, and then comes the soul, well, that's probably the way it's going to stay. So, uh, uh, I want to say that, um, I'll, I'll say it the way my grandfather said it. The Mishnah, in chapters of the fathers, it says like this. You should chase after even a small mitzvah. Chase after even a small mitzvah. And you should run away from an avera, from a sin. So I have to chase after a, a mitzvah and I have to run away from a sin. What, is that, what, what does that seem to indicate? The sin is chasing us. We better run away from it. And the mitzvah is fleeing from us. We have to chase it to get it. And what does that mean? It means it's much, much easier to do a sin than it is to do a mitzvah. Why is that? When you have to be proactive. But why? Shouldn't it be balanced? No. Why shouldn't it? Be, why shouldn't it be because balanced? Because you're back to the body being in the lead. Yeah, but if but if free choice is predicated on the premise that it has to be balanced, if it's not balanced. Well, it's not free. So how come the mitzvah is so much harder to accomplish than the than the than the sin? Because I have to run away from it. The Torah. Ooh, pleasure is greater from the mitzvah. And if the pleasure was, if let's say, let's say. The pleasure must be for the mitzvah, hence you have to work harder to get it. And if it was as easy to do a mitzvah as it was to do a sin, everyone would just do mitzvahs. So the balance is, is that, so this is why, you, why your question, I tried to present it from different angles. On one hand, doing a mitzvah is a much more sophisticated pleasure than doing a sin. It's much more sophisticated. It's a much greater pleasure. On the other hand, it's much easier to do 
a sin or to just let your body be in control and be just body, just simple pleasures, just like forgetting about the soul and the soul's pleasures. Why do you think the Bible says that the way of a child's heart is towards evil? To yes, live, live, Adam, and Uruf. Is that what you're, you're, are you quoting from Genesis chapter 9? I can't remember where it is, but it's, it's either Genesis or Exodus. It's I think it says. I think it says. I think I. What I believe you're quoting is from Genesis. To or leva adam ramin which means that the inclination of the heart of man is evil from his childhood. That's probably what you're what you're mentioning, and that is is that, like I said, from childhood. We have what's called the yetzer. I don't want to get into the exact mechanics of how it works, how the goof and the neshama, the body and the soul, and what is the uh, the um, role of the positive and negative inclinations. We've all we've all heard those terms. Yetzer, which means an inclination, desire. So it's a positive desire, negative desire. How they all work together is the mechanics of it. As it's it's uh, it, it's not complicated. It's just. The soul of the body; those are intrinsic. The influences are external, but those inf- there's there's the there's the influence of the, ne- the 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 negative influence starts from day one. The positive influence starts from when someone matures. So how is that fair? So it gets back to what we said earlier that it works in a dynamic way. That the pleasure of doing good is a much more sophisticated pleasure. On the other hand, the um, is much easier, and you're in the driver's seat. It's been the way you've been th- since you were a child. It's been that it's body first. So, uh, so that that's why it's balanced. So it's much easier. There's an element of, of of of, uh, of familiarity that we have with our body's <coughs> desires. It's much harder to have our soul's desires taken care of. Hence, you have to chase after to accomplish it. But it's a much greater accomplishment. So it, 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 in the end, it, it balances out. So what I want to at least have for today is to understand number one that the Torah is a pleasure manual. Number two. But the Torah has restrictions. So we say, well, it has restrictions. Those restrictions are only on the lowest levels of pleasures. And the lowest levels of pleasures, the physical, uh, physical, um, uh, sensual of relating to senses, pleasures that we have in life, those things, there has to be a balance. On one hand, we're told you better have them. On the other hand, we're told, hey, it's a danger. And there's a bunch of things the Torah tells us to avoid. Why the Torah tells us to avoid that? Does God really care about this? Right? What God's really trying to do, he's trying to coach us. The Torah remembers coaching us to how to have pleasure. And what's telling us is that if you just spend your life only focusing on the lowest levels of pleasures, by definition, you will overlook and neglect the greater levels of, of pleasures and you will uh, only uh, you, you'll, uh, settle for simple pleasures. So, the, on one hand, it's needed. Like I said, it's fuel. It's a way to avoid the pit, the pitfall of the backlash. If someone just tries to have a diet, you just want the salad, but eventually it, it'll it'll bounce back on you, and you'll just uh, bury yourself in ice cream. Right? That's the danger. Make sure you take care of the horse. The horse is going to help you to accomplish what you need. Right? Um, uh, Isaac with the, uh, with the steak. King David is another example with the music. Really, music? You're, you're playing the heart. Like that's a way to connect to God. Well. Maybe there's a certain spiritual element to music. Maybe there isn't. Uh, but it, it could be a way to make sure that the body's bored. The body wants to hear the music. It wants to sit down and relax. You give it that, you're able to ascend now with the soul. 
So there's the good of the soul, and then there, there's the good of the, of the physical pleasures, and then there's the dangers. And hence we have the restrictions. And all the Torah's restrictions, remember the Torah is guiding us how to have pleasure, to guide us to have pleasure. What kind of pleasure? The highest degrees of pleasure. What does it tell us? Make sure you don't spend your whole life only settling for simple pleasures. Now, I want to say a wonderful story, my favorite story of all time. Ready? Because this, uh, when we talked about what we should, uh, what topics we should have for conversation, we talked about Musar. And if you were to synthesize all of Musar into one sentence, you would say Musar is the Jewish philosophy of character refinement and ethical perfection via learning how to have control. Musar is going to teach us how to harness our body, harness our horse, the proverbial horse, and making sure that it's only used for the positive ways, it's only used for fuel, or for making sure the body's on board, but not getting uh, preoccupied with the, with the body, learning to control it, and, 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 and only indulge in the body for what's necessary for what I really want to accomplish. So my favorite story about this is the story of Rabbi Israel Salanter. Israel Salanter was the modern-day founder of this movement called the Musar movement. What he did is what he tried to collect all the Jewish lessons about character refinement and self-control and to make a movement out of it. To make it like like this very intellectual society of Jews that have this, this way of life, the Musar way of life. We're controlled, disciplined, we're balanced, right? Very, you know, very much, ref- very refined. And uh, he, his, his years were 1870 to 1893. And he was a smoker. And this comes way before 1967, where the Surgeon General finally gave this, uh, uh, the warning that cigarettes could be potential to someone's, everyone, was, everyone smoked, and no one knew that it was dangerous, it was bad for your, your health. It's a wonderful thing. And the intellectuals, you see the pictures. Everyone's, everyone's got a cigarette in their mouth. Everyone. So he smoked. And uh, one night, he woke up in the middle of the night. It was 2, 3 in the morning. And he wanted a cigarette. The problem is, didn't have any left in his pack. He was out of cigarettes. And the only way for him to get cigarettes in the middle of the night, let's see, what would he have to do? He'd have to walk about a mile to get his cigarettes. So he had in front of him two options. Either he could go walk the mile and get a cigarette, walk back, go back to sleep, smoke a cigarette, walk back to sleep. Or he could just go back to sleep and worry about cigarettes tomorrow. But his problem was, hey, if I walk an entire mile just to get those cigarettes, what I'm really doing is I'm feeding my temptations I'm feeding my body, I'm indulging in the body, and I'm making my desire for physical temptations even greater. Look what you're doing. You walked a whole mile. Such dedication to your cigarettes, what you're doing is you're making, you're losing control over yourself because your body now just, or your body or your instinct for this physical pleasure is going to be drained, you know, or, or enlarged. On the other hand, if I go to sleep, what I'm really doing is I'm saying I'm lazy. I don't want to walk a mile. I'll just go to sleep. So either way, either way, I'm making one of my characteristics 
harder to deal with, harder to harness. I'm losing control. What do I do? Either way, I, if I go, that I'm, 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 I have temptation. I'm like, if I stay, I'm just being lazy. You know what he did? He got up. He walked the entire way. He didn't buy the cigarettes. He walked back. I went back to sleep. Because I'm not lazy. I'm going all the way there. I'm doing the whole walk. I'm not giving my temptations. I'm not buying the cigarettes. I'm walking back going to sleep. Booyah! Favorite story. <laughs> So this, this, this shows us, like, that's the Musa perspective. I know that I'm in danger if I just let my body run wild. This horse could be crazy. I could so easily um, lose perspective of what I'm trying to hear to accomplish in life. And each one of my character maladies, and each one of my bodily desires, each one of those are holding me back from what I really want to accomplish. i got to make sure I have control. I'm control. I'm the driver. I got the reins. I'm control of this horse. It's not controlling me. I'm controlling it. How do I do that? I gotta make sure that it does not just run wild and me encourage that. I have to harness it. I gotta gotta control my my, my character. Be on top of it. On the other hand, it doesn't mean to be celibate. It doesn't mean to be a monk living in some. We don't believe that. That's not that's not, that's not, that's, that's not the Jewish. It's not the Jewish. Uh, that's not the Jewish way of life. We don't believe in isolation. We don't believe in, in flagellation. We don't believe in swelling pain to yourself or abstinence. That's not a Jewish ideal. The way our perspective for this pleasure is we do it for specific reasons. We, 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 we're, we were supposed to enjoy it, but not in a way that it's going to make it a goal unto its own. It's only there as a method of assisting us in accomplishing the other goal. It's the candy we give to the horse to make sure it does what the rider wants. If we're just doing what the horse wants, we gotta harness it, right? We gotta make sure we gotta walk there and say, I'm not giving it to the horse. The horse is not in charge, I'm in charge. I'm walking, I'm not lazy. I'm, I'm not buying the cigarettes, I'm in charge. The rider. That doesn't mean that you have to ignore the horse, you gotta make sure the horse is on board as well. But you have to be in control. So that's the perspective on, on, on the simple levels of pleasure. Well, what we're gonna try to do next week is to say, okay, fine. So we understand that the context of physical pleasures and why the Torah gives us restrictions in it. The Torah is helping us by saying, don't do this, don't do that. Does God really care about shaving or does God really care about milkweed? Is it really that important? Maybe yes, maybe no. Point is that even if God doesn't care about it, what God's saying, okay, these things, don't do it. Not because it's bad for you directly. It's bad for you indirectly. It's bad for you because if you just do all these things, right, your horse will be unleashed, and you'll have a much harder time to uh, to make sure that the rider is in control, and your soul is in control, and you're able to achieve those those things. And that and that and, and that's and that's a free will decision. We're going to have to make these choices. What am I going to value in life? What pleasure am I going to pursue? Am I just going to settle for simple pleasures, or am I going to try to strive for the higher pleasures? So that 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 try explain we try to explain what the value is of, of simple pleasures and why it's restricted why or the danger of it and how that plays into our free will. What we're going to try to do next week is the next four levels of pleasures, other levels of pleasures, and how the Torah guides us in each one of them. And and hopefully at the end of next week we'll reach to uh, the highest level of pleasure. We said the ultimate pleasure. God wants us to have the ultimate pleasure. What's this ultimate pleasure that God's really talking about? And how do we gain it? How do we access it? How do we tap into it? And how is it possible 
back to what we said at the beginning today, that there is an overlap between what uh, um, the greatest levels of pleasures that we could achieve, the ultimate pleasures, and how that could correspond to God's kingdom, God's dominion being uh, being enlarged and being uh, represented in a greater fashion. Will, which will bring the whole uh, discussion full circuit. And uh, just, so that's what I have for today. Oh, it's actually 11.30. How do you like that? Um, what I want to make two, maybe two and a half quick announcements uh, is that um, I am here till from 11.30 to 12.30 and I'm going to be uh, learning with people. Whoever wants to join is welcome to join. Um, if you're interested, yes, yes, no, no, as we say in Yiddish. I'm learning with Dan. Uh, to 11, uh, 11.30 to 12.30, but we can do it as in a group uh, setting as well. And I'm going to go like, if you're interested, yes, yes, no, no, as you say. Uh, that's number one. Number two is that uh, I have a unique opportunity uh, at the end of February, or the month of March is uh, Torch, uh, my organization. We have a, what's called Kosher, kosher Month. And it's a month where we raise awareness about kosher, what does kosher mean? We try to give... We do, we do a lot of uh, instructional classes about what is kosher and um, just basic know-how of kosher. There's the laws of kosher and the modern applications of kosher. Is it easy? Is it hard? What, is, what does it mean? Like It's a term that a lot of people use for a lot of things. You know, uh, What does it mean in actuality? So what I want to do, if there's interest, I would want to um, maybe make a certain presentation uh, at the end of February uh, but maybe a kosher one-on-one or kosher questions and answers uh, if there's interest. So you all let me know if there's interest. You mean one of the sittings? Like well, we could do a sitting like this. We could do it for half of it. It's not so long. It's, I, I, I found a way to uh, to make um, to make the everything you need to know about almost everything you need to know about kosher possible in like 25 minutes. So uh, if there's interest, then we'll do that. And, uh, and I know that uh, Alex Pfeffer who's the head of the Houston Kosher Association, who's the director, he says, he, he, he told me to ask you guys if there's interest, and he would, he would come up and, uh, as well and help with a presentation or whatever. And, you know, it's a nice thing where they have the entire community for a whole month having a certain awareness. There's a whole bunch of programs. There's the Kosher Chili Cook-Off uh, that they have every year. And, uh, huh? No cheese. No cheese. <laughs> No, it's like, it's like, there's like 40 contestants and like there's a whole panel. They're all tasting it. It's all serious. Um, but yeah, so if they, you know, if there's interest, then just, you know, then. Uh, yeah. Okay. 